two summers ago, we began to look at the life of David, Israel's greatest king. Uh, David's so important that his story takes up the better part of two books of the Bible and a few chapters of a third. And uh, we looked last at about roughly 20 years of David's life, from the time he was a boy of maybe 11 or 12 until he was in his early 30s. And the story began when Israel's first king, a man named Saul, got into some trouble. Saul had started well, but quickly showed that he had neither the temperament nor character to lead effectively. So God made a decision that Israel needed a new king. He directed Samuel, who was a remarkably gifted spiritual leader, uh, one of Israel's prophets, to a small town in an out-of-the-way place to an insignificant family um, led by a man named Jesse. Jesse had some impressive sons, but those were not the ones that God selected. God selected his youngest son, a boy named David. At that point, it was clear that one day David would be king. But for 20 years, nothing changed. It was a trying time full of defining moments as David grew into the man that he would become and Saul became a tragic example of failed leadership. The story contrasts Saul's jealousy, David's magnanimity, contrasts David's anger, or Saul's anger, with David's restraint, Saul's apostasy with David's piety. And along the way, David repeatedly demonstrated competence, character, and devotion to God. And as the first part of the story that we looked at a couple of summers ago predicted or showed, Samuel's prediction that David would one day be king was about to come true. At the end of 1 Samuel, Saul had led his forces, the forces of the nation of Israel, into battle against the Philistines, but it didn't go well. The Philistine army closed in on Saul, and an archer shot an arrow at close range, and it wounded him critically. Knowing that he'd soon be dead, he was concerned because he didn't want the Philistines to capture him and torture him and abuse him. And so he asked his assistant, uh, someone called an armor bearer, to go ahead and have him done in. But this man refused. So Saul fell on his own sword and died in minutes. It was a tragic end to a life that had begun with so much promise. And it paved the way for David to finally be king. And that's where we pick up the story this morning. Except, while this is a role David's been preparing for for his whole life, it's not so simple. The next seven years that we're going to look at are filled with uncertainty as David works to bring a nation together into one political entity. Now what we're going to look at today takes up four chapters of the Bible. To read it alone would take us 15, 16, 17 minutes. So I'm going to outline and summarize the outline of the story, point out some of the important details, but you can follow along if you would wish. We're going to begin reading in, uh, or looking at the story in 2 Samuel chapter 2 on page 426 in the Pew Bibles, page 426, if you'd like to follow along. The story begins just after Saul's funeral. Um, no one has replaced him. It's not clear how the transition is going to be handled. They didn't have an orderly way of handling political transitions as we do. For one, the nation isn't even united. There are 12 independent tribes. They'd all agreed to follow Saul, but at this point, their loyalties are all up for grabs. So at the beginning of chapter 2, David, uncertain, does what he has always done. And we're told in verse 1, David inquired of the Lord. He says, shall I go up to one of the towns of Judah? He asked, the Lord said, go up. David asked, where shall I go? To Hebron, the Lord answered. So David went up. And then it says in verse 4, then the men of Judah came to Hebron, and there they anointed David king over the tribe of Judah. Now we'll have more to say about this in a, a little bit later. But what David does here is something he repeatedly does throughout his life. When he's uncertain, he asks God for guidance. That's not something that Saul did. Saul had a tendency to rush 
impatiently into action and made mistakes that could have been avoided with just a moment's reflection and insight from God. In response to David's request for guidance, uh, God sends him to a gathering of men from his own tribe of Judah, where he's crowned king. But this is just king of one of the 12 tribes. What about the other 11? Well, what comes next tells us. Verse 8, Meanwhile, Abner, son of Ner, the commander of Saul's army, had taken Ishbosheth, the son of Saul, and made him king over all Israel. What's clear here, and what would become clear later, or even clearer later, is that Ishbosheth would not be king without Abner. He isn't God's choice, like David is. He isn't even the people's choice. He's Abner's choice. Now, what happens next is a lengthy conflict between the house of Saul and those loyal to David. Saul's led by Abner, and those who are loyal to David are led by a general named Joab. And with that, the narrator plunges into telling us the story of a civil war between these two groups. Now, in the next section in chapter 2, it describes a complicated battle between forces loyal to Saul's family and those loyal to David, forces led by Abner and those led by Joab. And what happens to start is that the two armies meet at a place called the Pool of Gibeon. It's probably more of a small lake, but the, the two forces gathered on opposite sides. So Abner's men were on one side, Joab's on the other, and things were tense until Abner devised a plan, proposed a contest. He said, rather than fight this out with the entire army, why don't we each pick 12 men and they'll fight it out, and whoever wins, wins the battle. Well, that's what they do. But as it turns out, things quickly got out of hand. All 12 on each side grabbed an opponent, thrust a dagger into his side, and all 24 fell down dead at the same time. Now, as you can imagine, things escalated from there. So soon everyone on both sides joined into this battle between those loyal to David, those loyal to Saul. And David's forces, led by Joab, came out ahead. In the end, Abner, the general of the losing side, was retreating. Actually, it's more accurate to say he was running away for his life. When one of the soldiers on the winning side, a man named Ashiel, one of Joab's brothers, took off after him. Now, uh, Ashiel had been the equivalent, the ancient history equivalent of a track star in college. And even though Abner got a head start, Ashiel was quickly gaining on him. Abner tried to persuade him to turn aside, to give up the chase, but he refused. And as he gained ground, Abner was forced to defend himself. And gruesomely, he killed Ashiel with the butt of his spear. Now, Ashiel's brothers, including Joab, are really pretty ticked at all of this, and they continue to pursue Abner. And as the sun begins to set, Abner nears a hill where some of the men from, who are loyal to Saul have gathered. He gets into the middle of them so he's protected. And then he, he, uh, he calls out to Joab and the others, Must the sword devour forever? Don't you realize that this will end in bitterness? How long before you order your men to stop pursuing their fellow Israelites? Now, as angry as Joab was about his, his brother's death, he sees the wisdom in what Abner proposes and suggests, and for a moment, at least, agrees to break off the battle. Now, when the two sides tally up their losses, they find out the forces loyal to Saul have lost 360 men, and those loyal to David, just 20. So David's side comes out uh, on top. Now, what we're told here is there are more battles. The outcome will soon, though, be familiar. More often than not, David's men, led by Joab, get the upper hand. So in verse uh, 1 of chapter 3, it says, The war between the house of Saul and the house of David lasted a long time. David grew stronger and stronger, while the house of Saul grew weaker and weaker. That last phrase, David grew stronger and stronger, while the house of, 
of Saul grew weaker and weaker is important because it's becoming clear to everyone that, they're, uh, that it's going to end and David's going to triumph. So it's a little bit like watching an NBA game. It's late in the fourth quarter. The home team is up by 20 points, and there's no way that the visitors are going to come back. God's clearly with David. And at this point, one person decides to take matters into his own hands. Abner is no fool. Um, he can see what everyone else sees, and he starts plotting how he can change sides. So the narrator tells us in verse 6 that Abner had been strengthening his own position in the house of Saul. He's nakedly ambitious, he's openly manipulative, and he understands that Ishbosheth's authority, um, he tries to undermine it by humiliating him and showing his weakness to the entire nation. And he does this by deliberately picking a quarrel with his boss, by taking one of Saul's mistresses as his lover. This is not, by the way, about sex, this is about power. He's signaling to Ishbosheth and the rest of the nation that he's in charge. Now, predictably, Ishbosheth objects, but Abner has a ready response. Let me just paraphrase what he says. He says, How dare you criticize me after all I've done for you? I've been loyal to your father Saul, and though I've had every opportunity, I have not handed you over to David. And now you have the gall to accuse me of a crime. Maybe I should just hand the kingdom over to David. After all, everyone knows that long ago God promised David he would rule the whole thing. Ishbosheth is so intimidated and so powerless that despite this act of defiance, he says nothing. Now, as long as Abner could control Ishbosheth and as long as the battles were going his way, he wasn't about to acknowledge David's authority. But now things have changed, and Abner's ambition is in full view. He felt little loyalty to Saul and his family. He wouldn't really be loyal to David. He's only loyal to himself, and he sees the tide turning. So he works quickly to change sides, and in the process, maybe even snag a cabinet post, maybe minister of defense. That would be nice. So he makes his move. In verse 12, it begins to tell how Abner goes over to David, how he changes sides. The first thing he does is he sends a message in verse 12 to David. Make an agreement with me, and I will help bring all Israel over to you. So David agrees on one condition, and we need a little background to understand what's going on here. And that is that years before, Saul had given his daughter Michael to David as his wife. However, quickly, he took her back and gave her to another man. And David has, this has been something that affected David deeply. So here, he asks for Michael back as his wife. Now you can see how powerless Ishbosheth is. He gives back his sister, Saul's daughter, David's former wife, to him. And he allows his army to go over to David's side, verses 15 and 16. Now, there's some shrewdness as well as perhaps some uh, uh, family affection here um, on David's part. Because by marrying or being reunited with Michael, he's now brought the two families together. So those loyal to Saul now have a reason to accept Saul, uh, David as their king. Abner wastes no time in persuading the northern tribes to join David. And to make it sound good, he uses religious language to seal the deal. Verse 18, Now do it. For the Lord promised David, By my servant David, I will rescue my people Israel from the hands of the Philistines and from the hand of all the enemy, all their enemies. Now he's using religious language, but make no mistake, Abner is not really a religious person. He's using this in a manipulative fashion. Despite achieving the results God intends, Abner's motives are not pure. It's not an exaggeration that say that everything he ever did was designed to secure political advantage, even if he has to trample on a few people on the way up. But he got the job done, and 
David trusted Abner. We're not sure why. Um, but assured that the other 11 tribes are coming, David sent Abner away in peace and left believing that he would have an important place, an important position in David's administration. Although his own situation is more precarious than he ever imagined. He may have won David over, but that, as it turns out, will not be enough. Just after Abner leaves David in peace, Joab and his men return from a successful raid. When Joab hears that Abner's come, that David sent him away in peace, he's furious. Paraphrasing, he says, what have you done? Why did you let him go? Don't you know he's a spy? And then Joab decides to take matters into his own hands. And so without seeking David's advice, permission, or even acknowledging what he's about to do, he sends for Abner. When Abner arrives, Joab takes him away privately. He stabs him in the stomach and kills him as a, re as a revenge for his brother Ashiel's death. Now, Abner is a popular man, so his death was an embarrassment to David because he obviously couldn't protect someone who decided to give him loyalty. Some, it seems, were um, questioning whether David was behind the assassination, so he quickly steps in here to squelch that rumor. He condemns Joab's uh, um, actions, even puts a curse on the family, and then to humiliate Joab even more, he asks him, requests, or commands him to play an important part in Abner's funeral. So David led the service for Abner, showing both sadness for his death and honor for his life, and he involves Joab in this, which much, must have been uh, just awful for, for Joab. But it pleased the people who saw David's genuine feelings for Abner, and they got the message that David had nothing to do with this. Now, you'd think after all of this that some in the story would, would get the, uh, uh, the idea to quit, quit trying to put, take matters into their own hands, that they would leave things to God. But there are two more people who can't help themselves and decide to do something they ought not have done. So with Abner gone, Ishbosheth, is, as we're told, lost all courage. In the end, he knew it, he was finished, but he was not yet removed from power, and David didn't believe it was necessary to eliminate him. Although two of Saul's officers stepped in here seeing an opportunity, they thought to get into David's good graces. So they traveled quickly to Ishbosheth's house. They went in secretly. They stabbed him, cut off his head, and slipped out the back door. And then they traveled all night back to see David, arrived in the morning to pre present David with Ishbosheth's head like a hostess gift. And now, if they thought David would be happy, they were wrong, very wrong, and they should have known better. In the story that we looked at a couple of years ago, um, when Saul died, Saul, as you remember what I mentioned earlier, it took his own life. But there was a man who, when he saw Saul's death, decided he would tell a different story. So he ran off to David to tell him that Saul had died. And he said that I'm the one who finished him off. In other words, he, did, he, he lied. He didn't actually kill him. But he knew Saul was dead. And he thought, if David thinks that I killed him, maybe he'll reward me. But David was so furious at this man's disrespect for God's anointed that he had him ex executed for dishonoring Saul. David trusted God to do what needed to be done in due time. So here, in similar fashion, he punishes Ishbosheth's assassins. It's now that the narrator brings us to the climax of the story, at least this part of the story. 27 years old, earlier, when David was a boy of 11 or 12, he was told that one day he'd be king. Seven and a half years earlier, after living much of his life hiding from a jealous and troubled Saul, David's crowned king of one of Israel's tribes. But now as a grown man in his late 30s, a man who has proven time and time again to be a man of character, of competence and devotion to God, 
he is ready to become king. Although to be more accurate, it's God is the one who's in charge. It's been his will all along that David be named king. And it's David's devotion and submission to God that has led him to this point. David did not, as others have, manipulate events, although he had numerous opportunities to do so. Instead, he trusted God, and after years of delay, he receives his reward. And so David, at the beginning of chapter 5, finally becomes king. Let me read the first five verses of 2 Samuel chapter 5. It says, All the tribes of Israel came to David at Hebron and said, We are your own flesh and blood. In the past, while Saul was king over us, you were the one who led Israel on their military campaigns. And the Lord said to you, You will shepherd my people Israel, and you will become their ruler. When all the elders of Israel had come to King David at Hebron, the king made a covenant with them at Hebron before the Lord, and they anointed David king over Israel. David was 30 years old when he became king, and he reigned 40 years. In Hebron, he reigned over Judah seven, and seven years and six months. And in Jerusalem, he reigned over all Israel and Judah for 33 years. So with that, David becomes the first in a long line of kings that would stretch 400 years into the future. But there's still some work to be done. One problem David faces is where to put the capital. And the problem is a political one. Because if he puts the capital in the south, where his tribe of Judah is from, those in the north won't trust him. And if he puts the capital in a city in the north, those in the south won't trust him. So he wants to find another location, and he finds one. It's a location, a town that has the added advantage of, being a strategic, a, a strate of having strategic military value. But there's one problem, and that is that there are people who are currently living there, people with a reputation for ferocity. When the Jebusites, the folks who are living there, hear that David's coming, they say, you will not get in here. Even the blind and lame can ward you off. Now, what they're confident of, if you've ever seen the, the, uh, the, the topography around the city of Jerusalem, is there are mountainous slopes and high walls, and they just assumed and laughed at the idea that anyone could take the city. But they were wrong, very wrong. David designed, uh, devised a clever strategy, and he took the city. He took up residence there and began to build the area up. And the narrator tells us that he became more and more powerful because the Lord God Almighty was with him. Now again, the city that I just mentioned that he conquered and later renamed is Jerusalem. And Jews have been living there now for over 3,000 years. As the news of David's political success spread, Israel's fiercest rivals, the Philistines, heard and took note. And immediately they marched out in force to attack David's army. This is a quick test of David's military and political leadership. There are two battles, and let me just tell you, spoiler alert, Israel wins both of these battles. But I want to point out what David does immediately before both of these particular conflicts. First, in verses 18 and 19, says that the Philistines had come and spread out in the valley of Rephium. David inquired of the Lord, Shall I go and attack the Philistines? Will you deliver them into my hands? The Lord answered him, Go. For I shall surely deliver the Philistines into your hands. So David went to Baal-perazim, and there he defeated them. Now here's the second battle, beginning in verse 23. David inquired of the Lord, and he answered, Do not go straight up, but circle around behind them and attack them in front of the poplar trees. So again, David follows God's instructions, and he's victorious. One time God instructs him to, to face them head on. Another time he uses an evasive tactic and attacks them from behind. Now, all of that is a, a whirlwind tour of four chapters of action-packed um, adventure. 
But what can we take away from this for us? How can we live it out? Let's first say that uh, we need to follow David's example. And the first way we can live this out is before anything, we need to inquire of the Lord. David's first step before any significant decision was to seek God's will. Now, let me be clear. That didn't mean that David didn't work hard on battle plans, that he didn't drill his troops and prepare them for conflict. We need to do our part. But we also need to begin by seeking God and asking for his wisdom and guidance. So we neither sit back and pray, just letting God, assuming that God will do our thinking for us, nor do we rush into action without thinking or praying. Instead, we start with God and then we do our part. Now, I can't tell you the number of times that I have stopped in the midst of a difficulty and asked God for wisdom, for guidance on a path to take, and he has given me just what I need in the moment. But with humility, I can also tell you that uh, there have been other times when I have plunged ahead, only later to wish that I had stopped and inquired of the Lord. The second lesson, the second way we can live this out is not to take matters into our own hands, but to trust God. Even if we think we're on God's side, don't manipulate things. Work through legitimate means, not behind closed doors. Don't use questionable means. Remember that we are God's people and we need to do God, things God's way. Abner was an opportunist. Job, uh, Joab was a strong man. He acted first and thought later. But David inquired of the Lord and trusted him with the outcome. One of the times in life when we're most tempted to take vengeance or to act without thinking is when we've been harmed, when we've been personally hurt or wounded. It's easy to lash out to allow anger to take control and to lay into someone. But this kind of response is utterly destructive and it's unbecoming of a Christian. Now, that said, let me just mention here that even in this story, we get hints that God is a gracious God and sometimes even when we make mistakes, he works things out on our behalf. It's one of the reassuring things that I find in the Bible is that God works even in the midst of some of our bonehead mistakes. Sometimes we lose control. We get impatient, we do things we shouldn't. And when this happens, we need to own up to it, confess it, and then move on. This is a story full of knuckleheads, guys who can't seem to get it right, yet God works his purposes anyway. That said, we shouldn't also be cavalier about all this. The main lesson we need to take away is that means, how we accomplish things, is important. And God's work needs to be done God's way, and we need to always trust God. The third lesson, the third way we can live this out is even when there are delays, remember that God will fulfill his promises. One of the hardest things to do as a Christian is to wait. To wait for God to do what only he can do. When you know what he intends to do, what his will is, and yet you do not yet have what you're hoping for. Trusting God while we wait is one of the hardest things that you may be asked to do. And yet, trust we must. God's faithful to bring his promises to completion. In the meantime, we rest in him, trusting his timing and resisting the temptation to take things into our own hands. We live in a life hack age. The how-to sections and self-help sections at Barnes & Noble are huge. We think that if we just look hard enough, we'll find somebody who's proposed a fix for what's wrong with our lives. And yes, there are things that need fixing and things that we need to do. But if there's any lesson that we can learn from David's story is that every story starts and ends with God. So we need to inquire of the Lord, not take matters into our own hands. And we need to trust him to fulfill his promises even when there are delays.
Let's pray. Father, thank you for David's example. An example of someone who, under great pressure, lived out these principles of trust, um, of inquiring of you, someone who sought you with his whole heart. David's a remarkable man, someone who, in many ways, we can emulate. So, Father, I pray that we might learn from his story. We might learn to trust you, to inquire of you, to give you um, our trust as we wait for you to act in our lives. We pray this in Jesus' name.